take your Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of John. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Now the title today is, It's to Your Advantage That I Go Away. And we began with that last week because we want you to put both of these sermons together. Don't think of one without the other. And the reason why it was to our advantage for Jesus to go away after His resurrection and to return to the Father, the reason why that is important is because Jesus said that if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit is going to do three things. In verse 8 of chapter 16, He is going to convict the world of sin He's going to convict the world of righteousness, and he's going to convict the world of what? Judgment. Now, it may not look like much of that is happening, but the Holy Spirit is doing those three things as we speak. And that's a big job. I'm glad God hasn't given that job to me and you, but he's given it to Holy Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say one other quick thing that uh, we talked about last week, and that is this. You'll remember in John chapter 14 that Jesus said he was going away. The disciples were pretty upset by that. But Jesus said, don't worry about that. If anyone loves me, verse 23 of John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, we would refer to the Father and to the Son, And we will come to him and make our home with him. So we always sing the song, Jesus, you're at the mention of your name. You're right there. But the Father has promised. Jesus has said that the Father is coming to live with us, dwell with us, be in us, empower us. Jesus is there to do the very same thing that the Father is doing. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't get a better deal than that, can you? That's why in prayer we don't have any problem addressing the Father. We're to address the Father, but we don't have any problem addressing the Son, and we don't have any problem addressing the Holy Spirit. This room is filled with people filled with the presence of God, His Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back and let's take a look at John 15 for a second. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is I want to give to you the, um, um, probably the context of this passage of Scripture. When I was a kid, When I was a kid, I still have the very first Bible that my parents got me when I was a kid. And every once in a while, I'll open the thing up and look at it and try to remember what my understanding of God's Word was like way back then. As a kid, you don't, you know, you don't know an awful lot. You go to Sunday school and you go to church and you go to youth group and uh, you learn a lot. But it always bothered me. Let me just say this to you. It always bothered me when I would read passages of Scripture like the one in John 15, 18, which is actually the context for what we're going to look at at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
the only consolation I take in this is that Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you. There's an ebb and flow in the world's response to Christianity. There's an ebb and flow in the world's response to you and I as believers. And at some point, as we share the gospel, those in the world have to stop hating us in order to respond in faith to the truth of God's word, right? Yes, of course. But now Jesus is taking a look at the world in general. He's taking a look at the whole thing. And he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, I could, uh, I could uh, give you additional information because all of this, this discussion goes all the way to verse 25. But let me just bring a couple of thoughts to your mind. This is the context of the passage of Scripture. And the thing that you and I need to keep in mind is that we live in a world where Jesus calls the problems that we will face with the world persecution. It can be very mild. It can be someone insulting you. Or it can be someone assaulting you. Or worse. But we see a variety of ways in which the world, and in our culture, and in the world in which we live, the insults come on a pretty regular basis, don't they? The insults come. And they not only your consolation and my consolation is that if Jesus was insulted, don't be surprised if you're going to be insulted too. There's plenty of insults, insults going around. Now, take, why is that the reason? Why is that the reason? Well, because if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world loves its own. But because you're not of the world, because you've taken a position where you and I live in the world, we must do our daily business in the world. We must rub shoulders with people in the world. But in one sense, we're not of the world because we don't believe the world, what the world believes. We're not, we're not on the road to hell like the world is on the road to hell. We're on the road to heaven. See, there's a difference there, you see. And I just want to remind you of a, a book that, uh, you know, when you get to it in our daily Bible reading, First Peter is going to be a wonderful book because maybe if you've studied well John, you'll say, boy, First Peter is a, pretty, is a book that looks awful lot like First John. But I just want to remind you of a couple of things in 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't have to refer to these verses, but let me, just, let me just relate this all so we can see a relationship between this and what Jesus said. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, Peter is talking about the stresses of believers under living in a, in a world that is counter to what Christianity believes. And so he says in verse 12, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they, what, everybody together, speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. All right. Now move over to the third chapter, verse 16. I'm staying on the same subject. I'm staying on the 
Uh, there are other things that he brings to bear in this passage of Scripture that we have to endure. But, but notice what he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. Having a good conscience that, that when they defame you as evildoers. Now, how do you like it? How do you feel when you're being defamed as an evildoer when you're not? How do you like it when you live in a society where we call evil good and good evil? And those of us who love the Lord and those of us who live to honor the Lord and to live with gracious Christian characteristics are called evil. That's crazy, isn't it? And then people wonder why we're so confused. We have such a confused society. We can't even define our terms right. We call good evil and evil good. We just all over the place as to what's right and what's wrong. Nobody knows what's right and what's wrong anymore. We wonder why we're so confused. And then we wonder why we're so depressed. Well, depression will come with confusion. Boy, I'll tell you what, but the God's Word can straighten all of that out. God's Word can straighten all of that out. And so just keep in mind that those are the things that we have to deal with. Now, go back to John chapter 15 for a second, and I just want to put this in perspective. So as I'm reading through the book of John, and I get to John chapter 15, verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit." So I look at this passage of Scripture and it says, well, this is horticulture. This is farming. This reminds me of what life was like when I was a kid. I didn't grow up on a farm. We had a farm right next door and we'd go over. We were just talking about that with Dawn. We were just talking about with, with, with Dawn the other, just yesterday. How we'd have to go over the, we'd have to walk down through the pasture and, and we'd have to dodge the cow pies and get to the barn and <laughs> get our milk and then come back, come back up. But I don't think anybody sitting here today is not familiar with farming. I think we all are familiar with farming. And so you can understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He owns the vineyard. He is the one who takes care of the, the vineyard. And then there are branches on the vines, and you know who the branches are, right? Without going any further, Jesus made it pretty clear that the branches are you and I. Now, Jesus spoke this back to the disciples the night of his crucifixion, but I want you to keep in mind that Jesus' words are timeless, so substitute your name for one of the apostles here. And when Jesus says you, put your name there, because he's referring to you. So what does he say here in this passage of Scripture? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You and I ought to look at this passage of Scripture and say, wow, here's a passage of Scripture that talks about fruit bearing. Now, I don't know about you, but I was growing up, it was a frustration for me any time Dad had some fruit trees and they weren't bearing any fruit. Or they were dying. It was a problem for me when I was growing up when maybe we weren't getting the stuff out of our garden that we thought we should get, that the garden wasn't that fruitful. Now, come on, you all know that, don't you? you all understand that. Say amen if you understand where I am with all of this. Fruitfulness. We really 
prize fruitfulness. We don't like unfruitfulness or barrenness. We don't like that. And so Jesus, I, so I'm assuming that you're excited. I'm assuming you're reading John 15 and you're saying, oh, you're on the edge of your seat now and you're saying, wow, here's what Jesus says about bearing fruit. Because the application is pretty clear. God wants you to bear fruit. Now, you, I only got 15 minutes here, so I'm not going to go into any theological dissertation as to what fruit means, but think about it this way. If you would do an analysis of Scripture on fruit bearing, you'd come up with two different classifications of fruit. You'd, do, you'd, you'd, you'd have fruit based on who we are, and you'd have fruit based on what we do. And I can bear fruit. Uh, is, is, it, is it fruit when we come on Sunday morning and you see uh, everybody sitting in church. Is that fruit? Yes, that's fruit, of course. It's a, it's a cluster of grapes, and it's a full cluster of grapes. If, uh, if you come on Sunday morning and there's nobody here, then that would be considered unfruitfulness. That's an example of what we do when we're compassionate and when we're loving and kind and it results in our giving and in our actions and in the energy that we put forth, that's fruit. But there's a second area, and everything that we do should come from the first area of fruit. Jesus said through the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapters 4, 5, and 6, building up to his discussion of the fact that God wants to develop in us the fruit of the Spirit. So being a Christian and people looking at us and saying, man, that, that person is full of love. That first person is full of goodness. That person is full of kindness. That person is full of self-control. I was at the store the other day. I was at the store the other day and, uh, and I, was, uh, I was talking to the clerk, tall, tall, tall kid, and uh, I didn't know if he was still in school or out of school, but I was talking to him and and I had, mentioned, uh, I had mentioned something to him uh, that is, uh, and he said, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> That's not me. And I thought, wow, I better talk to him a little bit more and see if I can gather some more. So the more I talked to him, I found out, no, I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. And I looked at him, and I said to him initially, hoping that we could get into more discussion down the road, I said, it, it, it feels good to have some self-control, doesn't it? He said, yeah. It's good to have some self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, you see. God wants us to bear the fruit of self-control. He wants us to bear the fruit of love, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Uh, and you can mention uh, dozens and dozens of Christian graces there, beginning with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, keep, keep that in mind. That's what God wants us to do. That's his intention for us. And so he uses the illustration of a vine. And, uh, and um, think about it this way. The, the disciples are at a meal with Jesus. They're eating the Passover meal. Now John begins the book of John by saying, there's Jesus, he is the Lamb of God. And so the disciples are sitting there, and guess what? The, the meat of preference, of course, during the Passover was lamb. And they have to be wondering the relationship between lamb and lamb of God in person. 
Then Jesus takes the bread and Jesus says, this is the bread of life. This is my body. And they have to try to see the relationship between the bread and Jesus once again. And then Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the cup. This is my blood. And again, they have to see the relationship. And in the discussion that Jesus has, he brings this one in now. And they have to figure out the relationship between the vine, the branches, the husbandman, and Jesus and themselves. It's a beautiful way for Jesus to teach. I understand it very, very well. I understand it very, very well. And I come away and I say, okay, the thing I need to know is how can I bear fruit? How can I bear fruit? How can I do it? Well, in John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, it says that we will bear fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I got to tell you, I've been in the ministry for 40 some years, and you'd think by now I would know I would know this passage of Scripture inside and out. But I've changed my translations from King James to New King James over the years. And I look at all these other translations as well. And sometimes, sometimes the words are a little different. And when I look at the words and they're a little different, I kind of forget. i got to go back and refresh my memory. So I looked at this and I said, okay, he prunes uh, that it may bear forth more fruit. Now, does anybody not know what pruning's all about? How you take the... How you prune things back to the trunk and yeah, yeah, there's no way in the world you don't know about that. <laughs> we were coming up, we were coming up the mountain here and we, 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 10 years, of, it wasn't very long, maybe 15 years ago now, there was a section that was lumbered, it was all lumbered out. And uh, we said, well, maybe we won't see trees in our lifetime. Those trees are now 30 feet tall, 30 feet tall. Why? Because they were pruned. In, this, in essence, they were pruned. And uh, you know, when you prune something, it tends to, it tends to grow faster. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a good biological reason why that happens. But the Bible says that he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse 3, he says, you are already clean. That was my question, you see. My question was, what is the relationship between pruning and clean until I realized when I got my Greek Bible out, that's the same word. The process of pruning, Jesus is really saying to his disciples, I've already done a lot of pruning with you guys, and you guys are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So it happens through a process of pruning, and pruning happens through a process of us taking God's word and imbibing it and saturating ourselves with it, you see. And so then Jesus says in verse 3, and I read verse 3, I says, ah, I can put my name in there. I am clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You remember Peter had a big argument with the Lord. Jesus wanted to wash his feet. 13th chapter. This is is, um, during this meal. Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you can't. You can't bow down and wash my feet. I should be washing yours. But you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your Jesus turned it into a spiritual lesson. Right then and there. He wasn't talking about the physical dirt that was on his feet. He turned it into a spiritual lesson. He said, Peter, if if I don't wash your feet, then you have nothing in me. 
And then Peter changed his mind. He said, well, Lord, Lord, I tell you what, then wash me from head to foot. Here I am. Give me a bath. And Jesus said, I don't need to. You're already clean. I don't need to. You're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. And that has for years put it in good perspective for me that God has cleaned us through a pruning process in, in this particular case. And in that process, I have to worry about getting my feet dirty from time to time and going to the Lord and saying, oh, Lord, I, just, I need my feet washed. See? Yeah, he said to Peter, he said, Peter, you're already clean. There's only one guy here that isn't. Who was that? Judas. He's the obnoxious, injurious plant. Now, so I can get this finished. Um, go, go with me back to Matthew chapter 13. I'll show you how I arrived at this mixing of two parables or two metaphors, if you may. Go back to Matthew chapter 13 for just a second. I, I didn't want to do something that wasn't right for me to do because I understand that God and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are at my elbow when I preach. I'm well aware of that. So I want to be extremely careful that I don't say anything that is wrong. Now, that doesn't mean I do it right all the time. I'm sure every once in a while the Lord will say, but, but, but you know, if, you, if we keep ourselves in the Scripture and we saturate ourselves with the Scripture, we ought to avoid a lot of mistakes that we would normally make. And every pastor makes them from time to time. But anyway, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. And you all know about the parable of the sower where the seed falls among four different types of soil. I don't want to look at that one. I want to look at the next one. He gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 24. Let's read it together. Another parable he gave, verse 24, chapter 13 of Matthew. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now the spiritual life, if you know the parable of the, of the tares and the wheat, you'll know that the tares are the obnoxious, injurious plants that resemble real wheat. They're the weeds, they're the thorns, they're the stuff that grows up along with the good stuff in the garden. And Jesus said, yeah, go rip it out. Is that what he said? No. No. He says in verse 29, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you will also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. I'll separate it all at harvest time. See, and, and we've known this forever. We can't live in a perfect world. It's sinful. We can't live in a perfect community. Our neighbors are sinful. Uh, we, we understand, please don't get a big head over that. You and I know what it's like to be sinful. We can't live in a perfect environment. Some of us live in towns that are worse than other towns. But the fact of the matter is, we live in fields of weeds, thorns, and tares that are vying for the same place 
the same nutrients and often to replace you and me. But you and I are expected, God wants us to bear fruit in a field of weeds and thorns and tares. I look at, I look at the last, you've heard me say this many times before. Here's, 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 the, here's the last supper. Jesus puts the last supper to, together for his disciples. It pictures his death on the cross. I wanted that, I wanted that supper to be perfect. But you know, if you'd have been invited to the last supper and you knew what it was all intended to mean, Jesus was going to be there. He was going to give you a good picture of what it was going to be like for him to go to the cross. And, and that's not the imperfect part of the Last Supper. The imperfect part of the Last Supper is Judas has to ruin it. He ruined it from a physical human perspective. He ruined it. Disciples are wondering what's happening. Jesus uh, tells Judas, well... Go ahead and do what you're going to do. Disciples can't figure it out. That depresses them even more. And then if that weren't bad enough, Peter ruins it too. <laughs> right? And if that weren't bad enough, you and I know that in Luke chapter 22, there was an argument generally among all of the disciples. And I say, can't anything be perfect? My, when I was growing up, my, our garden had to be perfect. Right? You don't want any weeds in your garden. But it was only perfect because we spent the whole summer getting rid of the weeds. And the fact of the matter is, you and I are going to live in a world, and let me just say this, I've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want you to hang on to what I'm saying here. We have a cultural war out there. All that we believe, all that the Bible teaches is being challenged and has been challenged. The church doesn't have the opportunity of bearing fruit in a field with no weeds and no thorns and no tares and no obnoxious, injurious plants. I keep referring to that because in the state of Pennsylvania, there is a list of obnoxious, injurious plants. Did you know that? You know what's near the top of the list? Poison ivy. <laughs> the plan, the idea is if you see any of it and you can safely get rid of it, do it. Because in Pennsylvania, any obnoxious plant, you can, you're allowed. But anyway, see, the point is we don't have the privilege of living in a society where we don't have to deal with obnoxious, injurious plants. Weeds and thorns and tares. So, can we grow when we're in competition with the weeds? Yes or no? How many say yes? All right. Can we thrive even if we're in competition with the weeds? Yes, yes. I see our roots have to go deeper than the roots of the weeds, right? It's like Psalm 1, our, deep, our, our tree roots have to go deeper down to where the water table is so that we're, leaves can thrive and we can be green all the time. That's what we got to do. Don't walk out here this morning and saying, uh, walk out here this morning, get in your car and drive around and look at the leaves and say, wow, 
let me spend some time thinking about what the Lord has to do with all of this wonderful, wonderful creation that we have. Do that. Don't go home and say, oh, I think tomorrow's the day. <laughs> what? Tomorrow. I think we'll all be gone by tomorrow. Don't do that. Don't do that. You and I have to bear fruit in a field of weeds and thorns, and, and we have to thrive. And God is going to do, and the Holy Spirit's going to do what He does. He's going to convict of sin. He's going to convict of righteousness. He's going to convict of judgment. Um, those who oppose God and His Word will have their day on Judgment Day. Not up to you and I to judge them now. We just have to coexist and pray. Now, I just want to say that we're, we're done, essentially done, but I want to give these six things to you really quick. And I'm just going to read them to you. I'm not going to give you any uh, commentary on them. In John chapter 15, the God Bible tells us that we're to abide in Christ. If you want to be successful in, this, in, in, in bearing fruit in a field of weeds, in a cursed earth, if you want to be successful in doing that, then you and I have to abide, abide in Christ. It's what he starts with in verse 2, abide in Christ. In verse 4, abide in me and I in you because you can't bear anything without me. He brings it to bear again in verse 5. He talks about it again in verse 6. He talks about it again in verse 7. Just go through your Bible, read it, and, and circle all the words that say abide. Circle all the verbs. I usually underline verbs, but... Circle them. How many times does he say, abide in me? Now, here, here are the results. I just want to list them for you. Verse 5, if we abide in Christ, we'll bear what? We'll bear much fruit. He started by saying we'll bear fruit, but then in verse 5 he said we'll bear much fruit. Verse 7, what will happen if we abide in Christ in verse 7? It's a good test, by the way. If you, if you have a life where you're not getting answers to your prayers, you probably ought to ask yourself the question, am I really abiding in Christ or not? Because the Bible says uh, if we abide in Christ, we can ask what we want, and God will do it for us. Strongly implied that you're not asking Him for a million dollars, but you're asking, him to be a, you're asking for Him to help you to be successful as a believer in a world that is constantly trying to tear you down. And then all of the prayer requests that go along with that. What's the third thing in verse 8? What's the first, third thing that we, uh, happens when we abide in Christ? What is it? Well, what is it? Oh, yeah, did I give you the wrong verse? Verse 8. Maybe I gave you the wrong verse. By this my Father is what? Oh, I see what you're saying. Bear much fruit. Yeah, that's going to come constantly. You're absolutely right, Tom. You're absolutely right, I bear much fruit. And, and, and aside from that is Jesus saying, guess what happens when you bear much fruit? My Father is what? Glorified. See, I'm not asking the right questions at the right time. Um, well, let me just give you the rest of these. So number one, you'll bear much fruit. Verse seven, you will be able to have answers to your prayers Number eight, verse eight, you will glorify the Father in the face of adversity. Remember First Peter, the illustration we gave you. Somebody insults you, and you respond as a Christian does, and God's glorified. The other, the other three that I have for you is verse 10. Verse 10 says simply this, 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And he has the word love there. Abiding in Christ is essentially also abiding in his love. And uh, you will then, if you want to abide in Christ, you will keep his commandments. And keeping his commandments means you're going to love each other. Verse 11, what else will happen? Verse 11, here I am going back and uh, hoping that I stated this right. What will happen if we abide in Christ in verse 11? Your joy will what? Remain in you and your joy will be full. And then finally in verse 14, what happens if we abide in Christ? You are what? My friends. You are my friends. Now I want you to think about it that way and I'm going to close in that. I want to close with that because the important thing is for you and I to abide in Christ so we get to the place where we understand that Christ is not only our Savior, Christ is not only our brother. Doesn't the Bible say that? Yes. From the human perspective, people will object and say, well, there's nothing human about Christ today. Yes, there is. Christ is just as much human as he was when he was born on this earth. Only no sin. And he's now in a resurrected body, standing at the, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And when Jesus comes back again, he's coming back as God-man. So just keep that in mind. But the thing is, a lot of times we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is God. True. In every respect. So he's superhuman, right? But he is also human. He's your friend. He's your friend. So why don't you try this next week? When you go out there and you, you want to invite someone to church next Sunday, say to them, I'm going to church to spend some time with my friend. Now you say friends, that would be all of us. Just say friend. I'm going to spend some time with my friend. And they might say, well, who, which friend is that? And you can say, Jesus. I'm spending time with my friend Jesus. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Right? All right. All right. I, I don't think we need to go any further. I have some other application here, but I don't think we need to go any further on that. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be fruitful. It's by your power, it's by your strength that you enable us to bear fruit. Help us to bear fruit in the midst of circumstances that are less than perfect. Help us to bear fruit in adverse conditions. Lord, help us to see that that's the way you have planned it to be. In Jesus, your most precious name we pray, amen.